God, Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. And I just pray that you can prepare our hearts for it as we look into a time when you called one of your servants to engage the culture of his time. And I pray that um, we can learn lessons from that today and that you would put on our heart, as you promise you do, uh, your word, and that when we are called by you, that we will be in a place that we can, like Isaiah said, hear my Lord, send me. Amen. Well, good morning. I know you're used to seeing Pastor Mark up here, and we're used to being in the New Testament and Romans, and uh, we're going to take a break from that today, and we're going to go to the Old Testament, and we're going to see Isaiah, but I promise you, we will jump back into Romans from time to time, just so that you can um, feel comfortable and, and feel like you're in the right place today. Um, we are going to uh, talk about uh, Isaiah and his calling, and we find that in uh, chapter 6 uh, of Isaiah, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to focus this morning on when God called Isaiah to confront the culture of his day. Now, to do that, as you know in your Bible study, it is very important to understand the context of God's word. What was the context? What was, what was going on at the time that Isaiah comes into the temple and has an encounter with the holy God? And so, for a moment, I want to take and look and take a little introduction and look at the culture of Isaiah's time. And so, uh, in Judah and in Israel at that time, both of these kingdoms had experienced about a half a century of increasing prosperity. They were increasingly powerful. They were increasingly respected around the world. And as time went on, though, increasingly, they gradually fell uh, into a serious and moral spiritual decline. Uh, now, under King Uzziah and Jotham and Hezekiah, uh, Israel maintained, a, Judah maintained an outward conformity to God's word. They maintained the appearances. Uh, folks went to uh, church, if you will, every Sunday. Um, but they didn't maintain the truth of God. They allowed the culture uh, to move into a spiritual decline. Uh, an analogy that I would think of in the United States is in 1971, the United States Supreme Court handed down uh, a very famous case called Lemon versus Kurtzman. And in that case, they said, the law of the American country from this day forward shall be that any government action, any law that it's passed, has to have a secular reason and a secular purpose. And from this day forward, sacred ideas or religious purposes, religious ideas could no longer inform government policy. Even though it was sacred ideas informing government policies that did nothing less than end slavery in this country. But similar to Isaiah's time, we have a decline in the culture where increasingly we want to move God out of the picture. Isaiah's culture replaced the truth of God for ideas of the world. Uh, and what happened was you started to see that in the culture. You started to see uh, the wealthy begin to oppress the poor. You started to see women ignore their families and go after uh, carnal pleasures. 
you saw the folks that were supposed to be maintaining the word of God and teaching the word of God, the priests and the prophets, they became very worldly and, and, and the Bible says drunken on top of it all, but they became very worldly. Instead of teaching the truth in the word of God, what they did is they got up and they said what the people with their itching ears wanted to hear. God's people had so violated the covenant that they had entered into with Moses that at the point that Isaiah is about to go in and have an encounter with the living God, uh, judgment and captivity were inevitable. And Isaiah would have known this. He, um, like folks today, you can see the culture that you're in. And as Paul writes in Romans uh, 1, 21-28, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to those things which are not proper. It was in this state of the culture that Isaiah is facing a living God. He's walking into a temple. He's walking into a place where God is about to call him to defend the culture. He's about to call him to confront the culture. But it's in that state of cultural decline that we have Isaiah walking into the temple. And so let's read through our Bible. Let's open our Bible up to chapter 6 of Isaiah. And we're going to read, um, you can read along with me in your Bible. I'm going to read out loud verses uh, 1 through 8. In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Two covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He reached to my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Is God calling you? Is God calling you this week to share the good news of Jesus in a culture that increasingly doesn't want to hear it? Is he calling you to give hope to those who have no hope? Is he giving you the opportunity to give a voice to those who cannot speak for themselves? Is he calling you to be a witness for him in your workplace, at your school, at your university? Is he calling you this week to defend your faith, 
In Scripture, we hear that we're supposed to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. Is he calling you to do that, to share that hope, and to be able to give a reason for why we trust in God? Is he perhaps calling you to reach those who are geographically close to us, but spiritually distant? We've sent a mission team to Africa now, and Pastor Mark's there with doctors, and he's, and he's equipping pastors there, and we're sending another mission team to Mexico. You know, are we also ready to send ourselves to Meridian Township and to the people of Lansing who so desperately need to hear the love of Jesus and his good news? Is he calling you to speak for the oppressed and the persecuted brothers and sisters to bring justice to this nation? Well, if he is, will we recognize, will we even in this culture recognize his voice when he calls? If you remember Samuel, God called Samuel. It was a very similar type of situation. The culture uh, at the time of Samuel was uh, an evil culture. There was moral relativism. The, the Bible says everybody did as they pleased. You know, what's good for you is good for you, but you know what? What's good for me is too. So, so we both are all right. There is no right and wrong. There's no good and bad. And the culture during Samuel's time was such that when Samuel was called, he wasn't even sure there was God on the phone. And so, do you remember the story? You know, Samuel uh, was, you know, serving the God, and he was with Eli, and he was a young boy at the time, and he goes to bed one night, and all of a sudden, God calls him. Samuel. And so he wakes up, and he, and he thinks Eli's calling him. He runs to Eli and says, here I am, Eli. What, what can I do for you? And Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so it happens a couple more times. Samuel. And, and he gets up, and, he, and again, not being even able to discern that God is calling because of the state of the culture that they're living in, he keeps running to Eli because he thinks, naturally, that Eli's calling. Eli's been around, though. And Eli discerns that it is God calling him. And so Eli instructs um, Samuel, if he calls you, you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel goes back to bed, and sure enough, God calls him. Samuel! And this time he gets up, and he does as he's been instructed. And Samuel answers, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Will our hearts be in a place that we can recognize God's calling when he calls? In Samuel's time, the culture was so much in decline that he wasn't even able to recognize that God was on the phone. Fortunately, there was an Eli there to tell him. And fortunately, at this Bible-believing church, you have Pastor Mark up here every single week, and he's here to tell you that God is on the phone and he's calling you into his service. Sometimes I can't even take it. I'm sitting there, and when he's preaching up here, I am just writing everything down with such intensity, and the word of God is coming out in such a powerful way, and we are so warned by it and we are so inspired by it and then monday comes and work starts or school starts and it's almost like samuel it's almost easy to go back to bed and i and i don't want that to happen let's not let that happen to us when we leave here with a warm heart committed to answer god's call let's not let that happen let's 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 use that word and how, so how should we respond when God calls? Well, God called Isaiah to confront the culture that was declining in his day as well. And you saw the fun verse, the really fun, exciting verses at the end. 
who will go for us? Here am I, send me. Well, before we get to here am I, send me, Isaiah first said, I saw the Lord. Before we get to say, here am I, send me, Isaiah saw his sin and said, woe is me. Before he saw what God was calling him to do, he saw God's holiness, and then he saw his own sinfulness. Let's look and see what Scripture says about what we have to do before we can get to a place where we are in a place that God can use us. So if we turn to verse 1 of chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. An earthly king dies. A culture that despises God is in power. But where's God? He is still on the throne. And so no matter how dark, no matter what your trial, no matter what we face in the coming years, I want you to always remember this moment. God is always on the throne. He is high on his throne. The, the, the verse says lofty here. There is not an English word for what is being translated here from the Hebrew. This is not just lofty. In, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's room. Uh, it's, it's to be very high. It's to be exalted. There's an idea of it being exalted and connecting. But not just that. Set way apart. God is the Holy One. God is set apart. He is so far from the sinful human beings that we are and for the sinfulness that we engage in um, it's that separatist, that, that, that very, very high on the throne. And so even in a world in cultural decline, this should be encouraging to us today that he is there and he is in control. Um, the men are studying on a Wednesday night um, the names of God. And one of the names of God is Adonai. And here the, the word for Lord in this particular um, in this particular verse, is Adonai, Lord, Master, his dominion. The name is emphasizing that God is still in charge of his creation and his people. And we can rest confident in that, that no matter the trials we face, our living God is sitting on the throne. Um, his uh, train of his robe is filling the temple. That is, you know, showing the immensity of his holiness. Uh, it forever leaves a powerful impression on the prophet Isaiah. And if you read all of his um, prophecy and all of his uh, writing in the book of Isaiah, you will see that this never leaves him. This forever, this idea, this, this understanding of how powerful uh, and, and immense uh, a God that we serve is never leaves Isaiah as he uh, answers uh, God's call. And so we move then to verse 2, where the seraphim are standing above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Now, these are heavenly beings that are burning brightly. In fact, that, that means burning ones in the Hebrew. These are brightly burning angelic creatures but in the presence of a holy God, where are their hands? They're covering their eyes. Even as bright as they are, 
in the, in the presence of a holy, holy God, they are covering their eyes and they are covering their feet. In the ancient Hebrew context, covering their feet is acknowledging the lowliness. This is a humble recognition that we are in the presence of a holy, omnipotent, all-powerful God. And in verse 3, one of these seraphs call out to another and they said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. This is what's called a, an antiphonal song. Uh, the song is actually called Sanctus. Uh, that these angels were singing. And, and it's hard to explain, but the best way I can illustrate it, and it's, a, and it's, and it's a horrible illustration, but if you've ever been to um, a Michigan State football game, and all of a sudden you have one side of the sta stadium saying, go green, and then the other side says, go white, go green, go white. Well, in a much holier, and a much higher context, what's going on here <laughs> is we have these angels worshiping the, the holy power of our God. Holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. And it's not just one holy. It's not just two holies. It's three holies. This um, emphasizes how far apart and, and how separate God is and how independent he is from his fallen creatures that have gone and rejected him and entered into a sinful lifestyle instead. Infinite distance exists between our sinfulness and a holy God. God himself, God's the holy one. God himself is the holy one. He's separate beyond all that we can even imagine. And when you hear the holiness over and over and over again three times, it is focusing on uh, just how holy our heavenly king is. But does this holy, 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 does that also represent the Trinity? Well, a lot of theologians think it does. And it's really interesting. When we get to verse 8, we're going to say the question, who will go for us? God's going to ask Isaiah. The word us is plural. And then you take that and you connect that with holy, holy, holy. And you read it in the context um, along with the New Testament. And it certainly, in a secondary way, uh, certainly does imply that our God is a, is a triune God. That's kind of cool. We got a, one Bible, one story, and I, I just love when that, um, when that truth emerges from time uh, to time. But it's holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And now we've got another word, glory, that again, the English translation just cannot do the word justice. And so we go back into the Hebrew and see when we're talking about the word glory, it's not just full of coolness. God's not just cool. It's filling the whole earth with his glory. And it connotes um, things like abundance and an honor and an honorableness. Um, now, one of the things, uh, an illustration that I can give you perhaps is if you've ever been to uh, a high school or a college and they have these display cases out there, you know, displaying the glory of their sports team or of their or of their debate teams or whatever they have, but they've got these display cases displaying their glory. You want to know what God's display case is? The whole earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. The earth is his worldwide display uh, for all of us to see, and it's an immeasurable kind of glory. We can't measure it as Christians. 
as fallen sinners. And even though the whole earth is his display case and is a testament to how powerful and how much glory he has, why do we refuse to glorify him as God? Why? And we're going to see just how powerful he is if we move to verse 4 and we see in the foundations and the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while a temple was filling with smoke. The word trembled here is not just, you know, dropping a pea into a glass of water and seeing a little ripple. This is a earthquake. This is a wave after wave after quivering and shaking and tottering and and the foundations of the thresholds are shaking, the Bible says. Now, I and my wife lived in Los Angeles. We had some work there, and so we were staying in an apartment on, in a high-rise in Los Angeles. And one day, there was, one night, there was an earthquake. And we're asleep in bed, and all of a sudden, the bed's shaking, we're waking up, we're hearing the plates shaking, and the, and the table is shaking. And what they teach you, if you happen to live in California, when there's an earthquake, you're supposed to get up, and you're supposed to go into the doorframe, because that's the safest place. That's, that's a solid, that's the most solid place. Well, just so you know, the power of God and the holiness of a God that we're dealing with, it was those things that were shaken. It wasn't the door, just the door that was shaken, but it was those permanent fixtures inside the door. Those were also shaking every time the seraph would say, holy, holy, holy. We are dealing with an all-powerful God. The shaking and the smoke coming all around uh, you might say that the building, the temple itself, was experiencing, experiencing some shock and awe uh, from, a, from a few years ago. Um, well, this is Isaiah's encounter with the living God. So it is any wonder in verse 5 that in the shaking room filled with smoke with his, the Lord's train throughout the whole temple that Isaiah, that Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am roomed. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people, a nation of unclean lips. He's in the presence of a holy God. He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of of a holy, all-powerful God. The building is shaking. The smoke is billowing. Imagine the walls of the church. Imagine the windowsills shaking and the door frames shaking. The more our sin is exposed before a holy God, the more fear we're probably going to have. The presence of a holy God makes us aware of our sin, and that's exactly, I think, what was happening to Isaiah here. He was in the presence of an all-powerful holy God and he knows what he and his sinful nature deserve. He comes to this state of humbleness because he has seen a holy God. At any time during the last month or so, 
Think about some of the times in your life over the last month. Would you have been shaking in your boots if God showed up and called you to do a special mission for him? Think about all those times in the last month. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. That's what the proverb says. And, and I imagine that Isaiah is beginning to get a pretty good understanding of that proverb at this point. Um, and so Isaiah exclaims, Woe is me. And we look at the Hebrew of the word woe. That's another word that the English just cannot do it justice. What you have to do is you have to take the word woe, put it in bold, and then put a great big exclamation point afterward. The word in the Hebrew means woe. It's disintegrating. I'm going to pieces. It's an impassioned expression of grief and despair. There's an unfathomable fearfulness being in the presence of a holy God in the sinful state that we are. So Isaiah sees his own sinful heart here, and it makes him afraid to be in the presence of a holy God. Finding oneself in the presence of God ought to be a fearsome reality check, um, kind of like a criminal in front of a judge at sentencing time. That's what I picture that Isaiah is feeling right about now. And so Isaiah regards himself as lost. He's ruined. He's done for. Uh, all the more, not just because he had been engaging in the cultural value system of the culture that he should have been confronting, but not just because he hadn't been doing the right thing, but he realizes that he's also in a nation of unclean lips. He's also part of uh, a nation where the culture had declined. Uh, and this vision of God's holiness, in a very stark way, points out to Isaiah his own unworthiness, which deserved judgment. It quite properly humbled him. It humbled him. Are we a people of unclean lips who live in a nation of unclean lips? Are we participating in a cultural values of a culture that God um, would rather us not participate in? Are we participating in the cultural values of a culture that has rejected God's truth? Well, a believing um, sight of a holy God tends to kind of sharpen us pretty quickly, doesn't it? And it can humble us. And therefore, like Isaiah, we must be prepared to humble ourselves in the presence of a holy Lord. And only, I think, when we are willing to humble ourselves can we begin to see how God wants to use us greatly. And I think that's what's happening here. Now, Isaiah did not feel worthy to answer God's call. He feared the Lord. He felt unworthy. And some of us may say, like Isaiah, but you don't know how unworthy I am. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. God would never use somebody who has sinned as bad as I have. But I'm here today to tell you that God uses sinners. The best people anywhere have a reason to be ashamed of ourselves. We are all unqualified. Why don't you take a look at this clip called The March of the Unqualified. 
and see if that helps put things in perspective. It's quite a crew. Want to join them? You know, and, and even beyond these wonderful biblical examples of how God uses all of us as sinners, I, I think of people like John Newton. He was a brutal captain of a slave ship. Did horrible, horrible things. And God used this wretched man who was a horrible slave trader and used him ultimately to end the slave trade in the United Kingdom. You might know him as the person who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. God uses all of us. There's nothing that you have done in your past that if you are willing to come to our living, all-powerful, holy God and confess it to him, that he will not forgive and be a transforming force in your life to send you out and then send you out and use him greatly for his glory. Matthew Henry said that the fittest are to be employed for God who are low in their own eyes and are made deeply sensible of their own unworthiness. And so, in verses 6 and 7, we see one of the seraphims, one of those heavenly beings, flying to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand. He'd taken it from the altar with the tongs, and he comes down, he touches my mouth with it, Isaiah says. Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away from you. Your sin, that is your guilt, is forgiven. It's forgiven, it's atoned for. What a beautiful Old Testament picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. To serve God, Isaiah needed to be a clean instrument. Did you notice that there was confession before there was forgiveness? The symbolic coal is very um, a wonderful picture, isn't it, of God's purifying work. 
And when that coal came down, and you've seen burning coals in your, uh, when you've cooked on your barbecue, and you've seen how hot those things are, and you saw that came down. Now, when the seraph came and touched the lips, that wasn't there. He wasn't intending to hurt Isaiah, it was there for the cleansing power of it. But nonetheless, repentance is painful sometimes, isn't it? Repentance certainly can be painful. We know, though, that the atonement, the complete getting rid of the guilt is, com is complete because Isaiah's guilt was taken away. It's gone. It's extinguished. It's like it was never there. Go back to my criminal that I told you about earlier that's before the sentencing judge and he's about to face the death penalty and the judge comes up and says, no, today you will not die. You've been given a full pardon. All you have to do is accept it. The guilt of Isaiah's sin was removed by a pardoning kind of mercy. Your iniquity is taken away, purged, gone like it was never there. Now, the spiritual cleansing here is designed, and what they're talking about here is preparing Isaiah to be able to be in a place where he can answer God's call. But wow, you can't miss the picture of Jesus and the Romans road either, can you, along the way? Uh, 3.23 in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, while Isaiah was still a sinner, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 10.13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you know what else? You'll be in a place to be ready to answer God's call so he can use you greatly. And that's what happens in verse 8. We see Isaiah being commissioned by God for a very important mission to confront the culture of his time. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Again, look at that word us. It's in the plural. Isn't that a wonderful, beautiful affirmation that we, that we serve a triune God? And the theologians very often link this with the holy, holy, holy verse. Uh, there is only one other time that this word, this Hebrew word, is used in the Old Testament. And it goes back to, um, in, in Genesis uh, but let's remember, let's go to John first. I want you to see that this is one big Bible, one big same story all the way through. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then we go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning. And you skip a few verses, and you get to verse 26, and it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the Old Testament and the New Testament are two different stories. It's all one wonderful story of Jesus and his love for us and his mercy for us and his forgiveness for our sins that are available for us. And so after Isaiah has been cleansed and forgiven following his confession, the very purpose of this encounter begins to become clear. God is getting ready to send him. 
Now, do you notice that when um, this happens, Isaiah is not coerced into service. Certainly an all-powerful God can, could, could force somebody into service, but Isaiah is not co- coerced into service. He's grateful. He, he is now in a place where his sins have been forgiven and he has been cleansed. And he's profoundly aware of the sinful nature of himself, but he knows that God is a loving, merciful God, and now he graciously, he's mercifully, he's, and, and because of all that grace and mercy, Isaiah says, I'm here, I'm in, I'm in. Um, God is sending Isaiah to confront an evil culture that for the most part had rejected him. We're not going to get into these verses because we don't have time today, but down later in verse 13, you will see that there's not much hope for this nation and, and God's not sending Isaiah to revive the nation and bring everybody back to him. But this still is going to be a message of hope because he says there's going to be a tenth. There's going to be a 10%. There's going to be a remnant that is there. And if you become a student of history and a student of the word and you look through all of world history and all of God's creation, you will see that even in the darkest times, our living God, our all-powerful holy God, he will always leave a remnant. And I'm not sure in this nation if God is calling us to help revive this nation and bring this nation back to him or whether he's calling us to ensure that there is a remnant for the next generation. I do know, though, that we're called to obey and be obedient. And I look throughout this room and I see many of you who have already answered that call and in tough times and in very great cost for some of you, you are answering that call. When God calls, we shouldn't do a worldly analysis and then only go if we think it's going to be successful in our own mind. If God calls, the answer is, here am I. Send me. John Quincy Adams said, duty is ours, results are God's. It is clear from the passage that there's hope for God's people. There's going to be a remnant. God has a continuing purpose in life for the remnant of his people. And so that leads us to some critical moves. Is God calling you? What's our next move? If he is. Is God calling you to share the good news of Jesus in a culture that doesn't want to hear it anymore? Is he calling you to give hope to those who have no hope? Is he calling you to be a voice for those that have no voice? Is he calling you to speak his truth? Now, go reread the Great Commission sometime this week. Because he does call us to tell the world about him and to make disciples for him. But read the rest of the Great Commission and to teach them all those things I have commanded you. To teach them all those things I have commanded you. And so when we go out, we got to know that we are serving a holy, all-powerful God and he doesn't want us to water, water it down. Maybe God is calling you to go for him in Africa or Mexico or elsewhere around the globe. Maybe he's calling you, though, to engage the culture right here in Meridian Township or Lansing. 
I do know that God is going to use you wherever you are, and if you are hearing his call, let's do some of those things that we have to do. Are we going to humble ourselves? You know, will we have people that are out there when we are answering the call, will they see evidence of a humble heart beating for Jesus? Now, much of my background, you heard, was a legal background. And as a legal background, you've got to have evidence. It either shows it's true or it's not true. Is there evidence of a heart beating for Jesus if somebody was looking at it? It's not enough for us to win the arguments. I, I have been trained in my legal training to destroy. I can have somebody whimpering on the ground and destroy their argument. Our job is not to win the argument. Our job is to win their soul. And they have to see a beating heart for Jesus if we're going to do that. I'm, I'm reminded of, of the two men who were businessmen. They had just had a, a long week and they're running through the airport because they're late to catch their plane and one of them topples an apple cart of a blind lady selling apples. And so he says to his colleague, go on, catch the plane, tell my wife I'll come tomorrow. And he stops and he picks up the apples and he uh, fixes the cart and puts the apples back in the basket. And the blind lady says to him, thank you so much, sir, I can see you are a Christian. He says, well, how can you see that I'm a Christian? He says, even a blind person can see the heart of Jesus in a human being. Will they see evidence of a heart beating for Jesus? Um, if we pray and meditate um, on God's principles, I think there's a better chance of that. I think if we pray and meditate on God's principles, it's going to uh, help us get prepared for the next thing I think we need to do to answer God's call, and that's bring all aspects of our life under God's dominion. This we must do like Isaiah. We have to stop participating in the cultural value system of a culture that God calls you to confront. And I know that's going to be hard because it's easy when we're in a room like this having the word of God preached from Pastor Mark each Sunday. But that world just kind of comes down like a 10-ton truck on us, doesn't it? As soon as Monday gets here. Um, can we offer our bodies, as the Bible said, as living sacrifices comma, holy and pleasing to God. Are we ready to be like Paul? I mean, God's not going to have to strike us blind like Paul to get our attention. But man, look at that transformation that Paul had. Look at the transformation that Isaiah had. Again, we're instructed, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every age, every time, whether it's Isaiah's time or whether it's our time, has certain worldview, ideas, pressures, cares, temptations, desires, ways of thinking, belief systems. We're not to be mixed up with them. We're not to be mixed up to them. When called to confront the culture of his day, Isaiah was a man of unclean lips and he was mixed up with a nation of unclean lips. Samson, same thing. You know, the, he was a Nazarene, right? And Nazarenes weren't supposed to, you know, cut their hair. They weren't supposed to touch dead animals. They weren't supposed to drink wine. And, and Samson did all those things. But that's not what got him in trouble. That's not why 
he failed in God's initial call, it's because he was participating in the value system of the culture that God had called him to confront. We're like Samson and Isaiah, called by God to be different in the culture. Let them see a heart beating from Jesus. Don't just win the argument, and yes, that we must do. We're supposed to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have, the Bible says. But let's win their soul as well with the way that we confront the culture. And know if you do that, in the fourth point here, you will um, face trials. And so it becomes very necessary that we are ready to preserve and support each other um, through those trials. And I, I picture Joshua going into battle. And remember, Moses is sitting on the rock and he's holding his hands up and he's got the staff up here. And as long as he's holding the staff up, things are going good for the Lord and good for the people. And what happens? His arms begin to get tired in life and with the trials that we'll face, our arms begin to be tired. But what happened had Aaron comes on one side or comes on the other and lifts them up and supports each other. Let's be that way for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when they face trials. Let's be there for them. Let's hold their arms up that God may be glorified in the end. Um, I'm going to leave it there because we're out of time, but um, may we be in a place that when God does show up and asks us to go for him, that we are able to say, hear my Lord, send me. Because at that day, that day that we will all face, when we face an all-powerful holy God, won't it be so sweet to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. May God bless you during the week.